Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Earlier this week, French President Macron arrived in Washington for the first state visit of the Biden administration. This visit comes on the heels of many months of strong transatlantic cooperation in response to Russia's war against Ukraine. More recently, however, there have been signs of friction in the transatlantic relationship, in particular with respect to trade issues. Most notably, leaders across the European Union, including in both France and Germany, have expressed strong concerns about the Buy American provisions of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and its potential negative effects on the European market. There have also been accusations that the United States is attempting to profit from the energy crisis by selling LNG at high prices to Europe, which is suffering the brunt of the economic fallout from the war. Uh, to discuss the French state visit and the irritants in transatlantic relations, we have a really stellar lineup. Um, bringing us the view from Paris is Matthew Droin. Um, Matthew is visiting fellow in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he focuses on transatlantic European security and defense. And prior to joining CSIS, Matthew served as deputy head of the Strategic Affairs Unit at the French Ministry for Europe and Foreign Affairs. Bringing us the view from Berlin is Liana Fix. Liana is a fellow for the is a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations. She is a historian and political scientist with expertise in German and European foreign and security policy, European security, transatlantic relations, Russia and Eastern Europe. And finally, um, to help us understand what's happening in the trade domain, we're really happy to welcome David Kleiman. And David is a visiting fellow at Bruegel, where he focuses on the climate and trade policy nexus, as well as legal and diplomatic challenges arising from transatlantic and international climate and trade cooperation. Okay. Now that we've got all that out of the way, um, Matthew, maybe I'll start with you and we'll certainly come back to the French visit, but if you could kind of rewind the tape, set the clocks back and remind us all um, about the context of Macron's visit to the United States, kind of what, what's the view from Paris? Why was this important? What was, what, what was, yeah, set the stage for the visit and then we'll kind of dig into what happened. All right. Thank you. And thank you for, for having me. So maybe if we rewind, uh, there is the bilateral perspective and then there is the, the broader perspective. On the bilateral perspective, you know that we, the French-American relations really hit a low uh, last year because of the AUKUS uh, crisis, the security partnership to, that was agreed with uh, the United Kingdom and, and Australia. And so the two countries have been working hard to, to repair ties. Uh, there was a previous joint statement by Joe Biden and President Macron in October uh, last year to have a roadmap uh, to, to repair the relations. And so the visit was also an occasion to, to take stock of, of, uh, of, where we, of where we go in the bilateral relations. And so obviously there's a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, progress and, uh, and that was also a way uh, for the U.S. to to highlight that uh, that the relation is back on track, and then on the the broader uh, uh, picture, uh, if if we rewind even further, uh, President Macron was already the the first uh, president, uh, the first head of state to be invited for a state visit under the Trump administration, and so I think it's um, if it says something is that uh, I think it also shows that uh, President Macron uh, managed to to raise his profile as. Uh, uh, but you asked me the, the Paris perspective, so I would say 
maybe the Paris that uh, President Macron answers the, the famous Kissinger questions of uh, uh, who uh, who do I call in Europe if I want to call uh, to call Europe? And uh, the fact that so different presidents have chosen uh, France as a as a partner at times of, uh, uh, of course, at times of Brexit, now at times of uh, of changes in other capitals. Um, I think it it says something about the uh, well, let's say, the success in uh, President Macron' ability to impose itself as a. That uh, stands out, uh, standing out as a European leader. Great. Um, we'll come back to that because I mean, one of the questions we've been kind of pulling the thread through different podcasts is kind of this question on leadership in Europe. So I'm sure we'll want to pick up on that. But David, do you want to set the stage even broader in terms of kind of uh, talking us through the context of these irritants that I mentioned in the introduction, especially the Inflation Reduction Act and kind of what the view is from Europe and why there are concerns? Sure. Thanks for having me, and I'll, I'll do my best. Um, well, you know, we um, had already in December of last year of 2021, uh, we had to, the Dombrovskis, we had the commissioner of the of the EU Commission for Trade uh, make a very strong uh, or sign a very strong letter to the U.S. Senate in which he complained about domestic content requirements, which were then bound to uh, union uh, value added in the domestic to, uh, production process. Um, yeah, there has been a very strong concern among uh, the trade section and the in the EU uh, delegation in Washington DC um, to lobby uh, USTR in regard of EVs and domestic content requirements and domestic assembly requirements. Um, then the issue was muted uh, for for some time um, in respect uh, of the sort of death of, of Build Back Better. Uh, legislation and uh, then came back very rather or rather unexpected um, during uh, the summer, uh, where you know some U.S. Uh, folks commentators said, you know, well, you know, the, the opposition from the EU side seems to be a bit muted, but everybody was really rather uh, at the beach in August at the time. So uh, you know there was there was a bit of a of a of a lack of or a lag of of response in terms of timing perhaps, but uh, but it came back even more uh, angry I think uh, after a while uh, about the disregard of uh, the EU concerns that had been voiced rather loudly um, uh, back in December already. So um, we had a uh, somewhat change in tone uh, very recently, I think about two weeks ago, where the political dynamic on the EU side has changed uh, quite dramatically in that, um, that we had member states, ministers from France and and uh, and Germany in particularly um, speaking out very loudly against uh, uh, the IRA domestic content provisions um, and and some other uh, domestic production um, um, incentives for for uh, for hydrogen in particular and and there you know it, the rhetoric really turned to say we need a solid a robust response that is equally restrictive and we need we have certain other. Um, uh, incentive mechanisms uh, for the U.S., negative incentive mechanisms uh, for the U.S. in terms of commercial diplomacy, uh, where we can uh, uh, tighten the screws a little bit in terms of uh, exerting pressure uh, on the Biden administration and potentially the Senate. So now we are at a stage where, uh, you know, we have a twofold uh, impact and uh, really like an, an emotional response also to the fact that we have extremely high energy prices in the in the EU. And the, the the feeling that there is a sort of uh, a strong incentive, a pull effect from the U.S. 
to divest uh, from the European Union. So that's where we are. And, uh, and I think that was the prologue somewhat to, uh, to the statements that have been made by, by the president, uh, by both presidents uh, uh, yesterday. Really quick, David. So on the on the U.S. side, kind of one of the responses has been, well, if you're unhappy about the U.S. subsidies, then go ahead and, you know, pass your own subsidies. Yeah. Um, is that how how is that message landing in Europe? Well, I think one fact that is uh, perhaps not quite understood or or hasn't been received, uh, one, a message that uh, that uh, that should have been heard is that the EU has been subsidizing and taxing uh, for the purpose of climate change mitigation for many years now and has uh, the EU Green Deal in operation uh, is spending about uh, 40 billion uh, euros per year in terms of uh, climate change incentives um, and is also taxing um, high emitting installations. So there is a climate policy in place. Um, the, the homework is somewhat done. And what the European Union really wants to avoid is to get into a wasteful subsidy race um, that undermines uh, the speed and the cost effectiveness of the rollout of uh, climate policies on both sides of the Atlantic. So climate nationalism and economic nationalism from the EU point of view is really not the way forward and the major concern. I know Jim wants to jump in, but this is a direct follow on to that, because if I, you know, listening to the White House, I, they recognize like the risk of this subsidy race, but they have tried to frame it in a way that it, this could be a race to the top. Is, I mean, and, and I'm not a trade expert nor an economist. Is that um, is that reasonable? Um, well, I mean, it is it is reasonable uh, to say that it is good that both sides use the instrument of subsidies to incentivize uh, you know carbon decarbonization um, and to in incentivize uh, the rollout of certain technologies which is the first best solution um, for you know positive spillovers um, you know incentivizing R&D and, and technology development so this is this is great um, what is in fact a hindrance and cannot possibly be welfare enhancing globally and domestically are domestic content requirements because they by definition will cut off uh, supply from certain from certain countries which are cheaper which are uh, more readily available could be of better quality even um and therefore uh, will slow down uh, the rollout of of products uh, that are necessary to uh, uh, to get to our uh, net zero uh, commitments uh, by 2025 2050 um, and so there, there we are. Um, we you know the economic rationale for domestic content requirements in terms of uh, in terms of climate policy does not exist, and domestic assembly uh, is sim similarly um, a hindrance uh, for for climate uh, policy effectiveness. Oh well, thank you so much for that. I, I uh, uh, and this my question also is directly related to that, and I. I know, Leanna, uh, Leanna, I know you have a lot to say and uh, you're being very patient. To, we just kind of locked on to David here. Uh, but let me ask you just a quick follow on to that. And then I think we need to hear uh, from Berlin what's happening in Berlin. But um, but David, you know, um, uh, during the press conference uh, uh, and, and Matthew, you might have a view on this. During the press conference, uh, President Macron said that we need to resynchronize. Uh, and I had to do an MSNBC thing right after that. And the host said, so Jim, what, is re what does that mean? Re and I, I 
said, well, I don't know, uh, but it could be, you know, how you do on TV. So, um, but, so what did that mean to you, given what you were, David, you were telling us about the problems? What do you think Macron meant by that? Do you think that what he meant was understood by the U.S.? Uh, or did the U.S. go, gosh, I'm not sure what that means. But secondarily, Biden said, well, you know, we get it. We're, we're in this together. We just need to tweak the legislation a little bit. Uh, you know, made it sound like it was just some paperwork. Uh, and I think there's probably a little a kernel of truth in both of those things. But, but what did you think? And Matthew and Liana, too. But the, what, what do you all think about both the synchronization and the tweaking uh, comments on, on trying to solve this problem? David? So I, I, well, there's there's uh, two different uh, dimensions, I think. Uh, one is the short term, the tweaking, uh, which is uh, sort of uh, the process that is in the hands of Treasury right now, um, where uh, basically Treasury and the IRS are uh, looking at ways to make this less painful. We, you know, we have the we have the black letter law that was passed by Senate, uh, but uh, we now have very strong concerns from Europe that are being heard, that are being try to uh, you know, where folks are trying to accommodate this in the US and and so uh, that is a process that will last until the 31st of December um that where uh, essentially um there's the the potential to interpret certain um uh, sentences uh, certain certain provisions in the RA to the extent to say does domestic assembly does it really mean uh, the entire car has to be assembled in the US or does it mean that you know and I'm only halfway joking here that uh, the steering wheel has to be screwed on um in in the US and and an EV that comes from from Europe can actually be be imported um, uh, and still be subject uh, to the subsidy or eligible for the subsidy. So that that is one that is one thing. Then there has been uh, the interpretation of what is what does a free trade agreement really mean in the mind of Joe Manchin, and uh, and is it is it is it uh, you know a free trade agreement in the in the terms of the USMCA or is it the free trade agreement? You know, more saying, you know, we're trading with allies under WTO rules, etc. Um, so does it does 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 that really uh, does it really not include Europe? And we can make an exception for for this in the regulatory process running up uh, to to December thirty first. This is something that will also be subject during the Trade and uh, Technology Council uh, coming up on December fifth. Um, that this this will be discussed. They, they hope to have an announcement on this. Um, and in addition to that, um, and and you know, or that is a that's a trade a trade irritant, a trade concern, very immediate. But in addition, to, in addition to that, what I think Macron has on his mind is to coordinate really, you know, how we pay uh, and to, to what extent we pay out subsidies um, to incentivize technology, um, uh, um, in the technology development, uh, R&D, and production on both sides of the Atlantic. And that is something that, uh, you know, creates a positive spillovers globally, and, and everybody can only win from. So this is getting rid of uh, trade irritants, but also um, on the on the larger scale, on the on the more um, uh, on the on the longer term, in the in the broader horizon, um, the idea of coordinating how much and 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 how we spend our public taxpayers' money. Well, that's close to what I said on TV, but you were much more eloquent. I was I had a lot of pauses between what I was saying. But anyway, thank you for that, David. Uh, it's your boss. I mean, Matthew, it's your boss who was talking about. You want to add to that, and then Liana, uh, you 
you've got the mic to say whatever you want to say on this or anything else. So Matthew, anything you want to add from the Paris side? Sure, happy if I can help on the translation of uh, resynchronize. So, uh, resynchroniser, uh, it re really was the, the keyword of the state visit, actually, not only uh, regarding uh, IRA, but other topics, uh, be it China or EU security, uh, European security and, and defense. So, basically, it's, it's different from cooperate or, or even coordinate. It's acknowledging that we have different pathways. Uh, and we have to make sure that they are they are as parallel as possible and not uh, uh, and not diverging. And so on on IR, on IR specifically, there were fears uh, from all ends of the spectrum that Macron would be either too weak or either too tough on uh, uh, on the United States. But I think it's fair to say that he uh, President Macron came first with no uh, specific mandate from other. Uh, Europeans and he came without uh, neither uh, sticks or, or carrots to to tackle the, the issue. But really, the idea to uh, to convey the message, to convey the concerns, and clarify the intents. And I think the the key, also one of the key takeaway from the, the the press conference yesterday is that President Macron even said we we sh we share the same vision uh, yeah. on on uh, on this issue, and and it's really a, a you know for President Macron is uh, dubbed in France as a uh, the en même temps uh, present, which means at, at the same time. And, and this is really at, at the same time issue because the overall objective is the one that the uh, Europeans have been calling for uh, for uh, for years. But then, of course, the, the collateral damages are, are real. Uh, they, they are they are serious. And I'm sure uh, Lyanna would, would, would agree on that. And, and, and sometimes maybe the coverage has been uh, insisting on only one side of the uh, en même temps, which is the uh, the uh, Macron saying uh, it's risk fragmenting uh, Europe. But if, if you look at the the whole message, it was quite quite balanced and uh, really uh, constructive and productive. And let's wait, let's work together. There was a joint statement saying the ball now is in the court of this uh, EU US uh, task force that has been put in place to try to to find what we can put behind the, the tweaks. Uh, mentioned by uh, Joe Biden. So yes, that, that's how I would uh, put it. Yeah, Excellent. I mean, it is notable that they stood up that task force right away and that it's being run out of the White House. So they're obviously taking the concern seriously. But Liana, in Ger I mean, Germany has had similar concerns. So I don't if you want to weigh in on that. And then I think the larger question is, what are the risks that these types of irritants can spill over um, and complicate cooperation on other areas of shared interest. Is that something that you're worried about? Like how, how significant do you think these, you know, we're calling them irritants, but how, you know, how significant are they? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Um, let me say first that I think Berlin would not be excited if the number, Kissinger's number to call Europe would be Paris. And I think this also points- I was waiting for you to jump in on that. <laughs> and I'm sure the Brits but have another view as well. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I have to say, obviously, this trip is for Macron a great opportunity to present himself as the leader of Europe, who defends the European Union, who defends the Europeans and has all the Europeans behind him. I would not be so sure that, that, this, is, that this is actually the case. And I mean, from a German perspective, I think there are two issues at play. I mean, obviously, there is real concern. Um, I mean, the double blow of high energy prices and the IRA, uh, there's little more that can panic German politicians more than a deindustrialization of Germany or Germany becoming an industrial wasteland. And we had some comments 
um, a polling from the German industry, which said that one of five medium-sized companies were considering leaving the country. Um, the chemical giant, uh, giant and BASF announced that they will reduce their business activities. And there was also in the German press um, a lot of criticism towards the United States, that the United States is a false friend, which was quite a harsh, harsh language, um, especially in the context of um, of, of China policy, of also pressure on Berlin to become tougher on China. But I think then there are also political dynamics at play. And I think it's interesting that the first time that Scholz came out so strongly on IRA was when he had a bilateral meeting with Macron to mend ties between the two countries because they had a fallout before on energy and, 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 and defense issues. So it was very much sort of finding common ground with the French and suddenly also the German Minister of the Economy, Robert Habeck, became very French and became very close to his French counterpart, which was unusual, supporting protectionist measures, and which obviously did not amuse the German finance minister, who is a liberal and is obviously not at all in favor of um, subsidies or even about of considering joint debt for having a European by European act. So that's the political dynamic there. And from a German perspective, Germany suddenly does not want a trade war with the United States. And I think they see it in the much bigger picture of support from the United States for Ukraine. And I don't think that Macron's language, which he used about a fragmentation of the West, was something that Berlin particularly appreciated, because that was that was quite tough. And obviously, it was in the context of economic policy. But what Berlin wants is to find a way out of this, to find loopholes in the implementation, the regulation, to find adjustments. Um, there's no free trade agreement, but obviously Germany is a free trade country, so perhaps there are ways to, to make this work. Um, but uh, Germany is more concerned about the transatlantic um, fallout um, on these issues. And it's also concerned about the French playing this up and making it such a big issue of, of Western unity. Um, which perhaps is also a way of Macron to negotiate and to get concessions from, from, from the United States, but it's not the German way of doing it. And just to conclude, what does this tell us about the state of transatlantic relations? I would say not much. I mean, I think what it tells us is that nerves are war, that everyone is very jumpy, that one has been in a pressure cooker for nine months now together after the war broke out. Um, and that this pressure cooker sort of boiled over at the moment. Um, and everyone is, use, is using the, the Putin part card. So everyone is saying, well, you have to follow our suggestions. Otherwise, um, unity will be at stake and Vladimir Putin will benefit. And I think we have to learn again how to sort of have transatlantic disagreements without sort of becoming those, letting those disagreements become an issue on the strategic level or becoming an issue of Western fragmentation, as Macron put it, um, because we'll we'll be in this together for a long time to go. And uh, there it doesn't help to make policy issues, issues of strategic relevance. It's a good point that you raise. Yeah. And Matthew, you can jump in too. But I mean, this idea, and I don't, know if it's a characterization, like you said, of this pressure cooker and the media is so intensely watching every little thing that happens in the transatlantic relationship in a different way. Um, Politico had that really explosive piece on this rift between the United States and Europe. And then you, when I have had conversations with White House officials, that's not the sense that they communicate. That it's very much their sense that behind the scenes, things are much calmer 
um, than the media would portray. So I, I mean, I think it's a really important point that, I mean, we we have to be really careful not to blow things out of proportion um, in the public domain, especially when behind the scenes, things are, are actually chugging along in a reasonable way and people are working through these, uh, dif these differences in perspective. But Matthew, go ahead and jump in. Yes, thank you, and I think I would uh, I would agree with what you what you just said, and maybe just to 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 quote the exact uh, uh, wording from Pedro Macron is that it risks fragmenting the West. It's not like it's fragmenting the West, and uh, that's I think that's quite a factual uh, analysis. And and then I, I agree that we should not over overplay the risk for the transatlantic uh, relation. I think Layana and, and me are uh, replaying somehow the game that is uh, going on internally at the European Commission, where you have uh, Margaret Vestager, uh, the Commissioner for Competition, saying one war at a time, where uh, when by Thierry Breton, uh, the, the internal market commissioner says we should be on all fronts. Uh, so these are indeed different uh, different visions that translate what is, what is uh, uh, going on in Europe, but I think really the... Um, uh, these are different set of, of policies. The, the the what you what the U.S. do for for Europe and for Ukraine specifically. I think everyone acknowledges that that's uh, that's absolutely uh, critical. And then there is this uh, energy and trade issues. And I, I think the two th there are of course some some relations, but they are not directly linked. I think those actually who link these uh, these issues are more on the on uh, the american side of the atlantic than in the in the european uh, side uh, i would argue and there there are the uh, uh, ongoing debates in in, in the congress and, and i don't think that uh, what europe says would change uh, the nature of the debate in the us I mean, they are protectionists and they will remain protectionist anyway and so i i i wouldn't over overstate the impact on the, the transatlantic relations David, I'll come to you in a second on this the protectionist piece and kind of where it's headed. But there, um, if you go and read the joint statement, it's incredibly long. <laughs> it was a really long joint statement that touched on so many different issues. Maybe if I can pick up on two of those. One is the strategic autonomy piece, right? There was definitely language in there where, where I think the French were able to kind of uh, I don't know, maybe it was a little bit of a victory to get U.S. support for building more of a European pillar within the, de the defense community. But I was just looking at my phone because there was a really interesting quote from Finland's prime minister today. I don't know if you saw this, where she says, Europe isn't strong enough right now. We would be in trouble without the United States. And so I want to, if I can get both of your views, Matthew and both Liana, on this idea of strategic autonomy and how you think the war in Ukraine has um, in, uh, shaped the trajectory of that idea and that movement. Sure. So uh, um, on the the victory on the uh, strategic autonomy, I don't think strategic autonomy is, is mentioned as such in the in the concept, but but it's true that uh, it said that more uh, capable uh, European defense. Actually, the victory dates back from October uh, last year. This was one of the concession that the the French get from uh, from AUKUS in the uh, in the Biden Macron uh, statement, and it has been copy paste uh, in this uh, in this declaration. Only adding, which is important, uh, interoperable. Uh, with uh, with NATO, um, and and so and I think it's also translate um, 
I think a, a, a genuine vision from not the whole American administration, but at least from Joe Biden and, and Secretary Blinken uh, that are much more open to uh, actually a more uh, a stronger and more responsible Europe, uh, even in, in the realm of security and, and, and defense, which is also a way that would help uh, the US uh, pilot. Um, and then on the the, the comment from uh, from Sana Marine, which I, I just saw uh, before the the podcast, I think this is uh, this is fair. Uh, this is obvious, and uh, I think the uh, even the European unity and the, and the strength of the uh, the European response, which we can which we can discuss later, uh, would not have been the same if there was not this. Uh, this uh, pulling effect from the the huge uh, and massive uh, effort from the from the US. But do you think that the war in Ukraine has like put more wind in Macron's sails on this idea and like the the necessity to build a stronger Europe, or has it discredited it for many for some European allies? And Liana, I'm curious to get your view on that too. Well, I think I think the picture is uh, is balanced because, of course, if uh, if if you go on the eastern side of uh, uh, of Europe, they, they would say that the, uh, I mean, without the without this U.S. Uh, strong involvement and and strong uh, commitment, uh, Europe would not would not have been able to to stand uh, against this uh, uh, against this war. So, uh, but but then it's also um, the, the European response has been has been I mean, very unique. Uh, if you look at the uh, the, the arms uh, transfer to the European Peace Facility, the, the sanctions that were taken in in a, in a very short uh, period of time. So, I think it also give credit that Europeans uh, can do things on their own, and and uh, the, this arms transfer uh, were through through the EU, not through not through NATO. So, I think it also I think the the picture is rather uh, is rather mixed, uh, but I think it, it's the it, yeah, it, it gives us some credit to the uh, strategic autonomy. I, mean, I think I, I would agree with you that there were some steps taken which can position the EU as a stronger security actor. But I would say that overall, it is really NATO that comes out of this conflict strength. And, and when it comes to the strategic autonomy discussion, I do have the impression that France is missing out on an opportunity here because um, the war in Ukraine would have been such a great occasion for France to demonstrate that all the skepticism from Central and Eastern Europeans is not justified, that France can be that partner which will protect those countries in the East. Um, and uh, the, an easy step would have been to support Ukraine with everything they have, with, with much more than France has done so far. So I think from the perspective of Central Eastern Europeans, this war has demonstrated that it's really the United States they can count on. And if you ask them, um, looking back at 2022, do you trust Germany and France to, to defend you um, and to be there, even if the United States might be more hesitant perhaps in the future at some point? I think the answer would be no. And I, I, obviously strategic autonomy has um, this broad, has become this broad term. And in, in the economic terms, I think Robert Habeck also said that we need some strategic autonomy in, in the economic sphere and so on. But just on the security and defense part, I think this could have been a window of opportunity, which is almost closed by now, which France hasn't used to advance its idea, which again leads many to ask, well, is this really about um, 
France protecting uh, Europe in, in its entirety, or is it about a French leadership role? What is strategic autonomy about? Well, I, I love this discussion. Uh, I, I love it. Uh, I, and I promise I'm not going to go on and on. But so I've worked this since since 1990. OK, since ESDI, as it was called. So whether you call it strategic autonomy or CSDP or all these various names, it's been the same. It's been the same thing. What, uh, but but uh, but what is absent is the mudslinging and the insulting and this type of thing that we had in like 2000 between Paris and the U.S. And, and uh, it was a, it was a mess and it was wrong. And it, and it really set us back in terms of of, of what we're trying to do. Uh, but but the idea of creating a strong European pillar uh, in NATO has always been there and has always been growing to, to do that. Uh, and this, the U.S. has always been throwing rocks at it, but it continued nonetheless. Uh, to, but, but I think where we are now is, so what does this really mean? How does this translate into something you can, you can touch and say, this is the example of strategic autonomy? Leanna, you, you, you said this is a great opportunity for France to show this is digital autonomy. Let us show you lots of French assistance going in or the EU organizing something around the European, you know, military, uh, you know, and sending a lot of EU flagged things over. That didn't happen. So I think I think really what, what we're looking at here is strategic autonomy at the to the point where they can actually show that and demonstrate that and get the. Uh, and get the, the credibility and the confidence of Central and Eastern Europe, which is not there. Uh, it is all on the U.S. I used to thought that I had to work with that constantly. Um, it's really uh, it's the opportunity is 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 kind of fallen right now because because everyone showed that they didn't have enough of the military capability to provide, not enough ammunition, not enough stuff in the European arsenals to provide to Ukraine because no one had enough. And so we showed that uh, when the trips, ships were down, no one had the equipment to show what we could do. Uh, and so I think it's a lost opportunity, not just for France, but for the EU and the European nations themselves to prove to Central and Eastern Europe, we've got your back. But then when it was time to prove that, there, there, the, the wherewithal wasn't there. And the, 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 the final point is that... Um, a lot of this actually strategic autonomy comes down to defense industries and how the European and the U.S. defense industries relate to one another, because strategic autonomy is based on a strong European defense that is built in Europe. Uh, and there's trouble there because of the U.S. And, and we, we know the transatlantic defense industrial thing has always been problematic, always tried to work it. But really, strategic autonomy works politically in terms of nations having faith in it. And uh, it works if it's underpinned by a strong uh, European defense industry young and strong European defense capabilities. But those still are not there. They're, they're still trying to build it, but it's not there yet. And that's why Poland and others run to the U.S. when there's trouble. Just to, to uh, one quick point on that, I think it really points to a leadership question in this war, right? Because we do not see European leadership. We do see Europeans leaning in um, when it comes to the United States. And when Germany tried to have an initiative, the European Shield Initiative, to cooperate air defenses in Europe, um, France and Poland opted out of that. Um, so that really shows that leadership in Europe is something which relies on trust and also close coordination, especially between France and Poland and to both sides, sort of to the west and to the east of Berlin, it doesn't look good.
at the moment when it comes yeah. to relationships. And this makes uh, this kind of leadership efforts more difficult. But perhaps Mathieu disagrees on that. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's right. There and was then, quite a bit in the joint statement on the defense on kind of trying to remove some of the obstacles in the defense industrial bases, weren't there? In the joint statement, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes, maybe if I can come back to uh, to Jim's uh, comments, uh, which have some, some truth in it. Well, I think we we have to consider uh, several factors. First is the heritage of history, and of course, most of the Eastern uh, European countries and even Germany have placed their their defense uh, within the hands of NATO and within the hands of the U.S. So for and for them, I mean, shifting uh, towards uh, the European Union or uh, an effort led by some some EU countries like, like France is, uh, I mean, it would be uh, uh, would would be a Titan vendor actually, uh, and, and then you have a different uh, you have different points of departure also like the I mean EU stepping up in the realm of security and defense is still very very fresh, and we have to acknowledge uh, what has been done in only uh, a few years uh, that. Uh, of course, the, the the Trump era started gave, gave some impetus, but uh, there, I mean, we, we should not also shy away from uh, from highlighting the, the progress that has been made. The European, I mean, I, I won't uh, quote them all, but the European Defense Fund, the European Peace Facility, the uh, the permanent structured cooperation. Now there are discussions on joint procurement and joint investment in defense. And if I if I can help to reconcile. Uh, Paris and Berlin here. There was an agreement this week to to go to go ahead with the uh, with the CAS, which is an important uh, project. So I think there there are things uh, going on, and also I want to nuance the uh, uh, the missed opportunity for the let's say West West Europe to to support Eastern Europe. I mean, if you look at all what's going on in NATO in terms of uh, uh, posture reassurance in on the East. You would see that uh, UK, Germany, and France are actually the three countries that do most of the effort, uh, be it in, in Estonia, in Lithuania, uh, in Romania, where there was this uh, ministerial meeting uh, of uh, foreign affairs minister this week. So I think the, the, the picture is more nuanced, and I think the, uh, our capital spent a great deal of time uh, trying to reassure uh, the, the Eastern European countries. Um, and I agree with uh, maybe not the effects that we that we would like. And, and I also get the point uh, of of Liana of uh, what uh, France could have uh, France and Germany actually could have uh, done more uh, in terms of support to to Ukraine to show um, not only how committed they are, but how able they are. And I think there is also maybe I will finish with this one uh, uh, a resource issue. Matthew, I agree with your nuances, and I was painting with a broad brush there. And, and Liana, I, I, I agree. There is a lot of nuance and a lot of change over time to build this. But I think we have really seen that there's a lot more work to go, because I would rather, frankly, that the foreign minister's comment from Helsinki not be that the U.S., you know, everyone has, is, you know, everyone has had to run back to the U.S. umbrella. I would rather the umbrella be not just the U.S., but a big European one, too, so that we weren't carrying that load. A lot of what we've seen is the old playbook. Everybody reigns the U.S. because the Russians are on the march. It would have been great had it been all of us together. But I think what we've seen is that there's been a lot of great progress and a lot of great work done by those capitals that you mentioned. Absolutely. But it shows that we really need to, to really build it so the umbrella gets bigger than just the U.S. OK, that's it. Thank you very much, Andrea. I 
No, <laughs> over, David, over to you. I was just, you know, uh, being a trade expert and, uh, you know, somewhat, uh, you know, responsible in my work for international economic relations rather than uh, than in security relations. I find this debate fascinating, fascinating to listen to, because I think one thing and here, you know, is the benefit of sitting in between of Berlin and, 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 and Paris is in Brussels, where, you know, uh, the view uh, might also be a little bit different in an area. Uh, where the European Commission and the European Union have exclusive competence uh, for trade and investment, and uh, France and uh, Germany are really only member states in a council where 27 member states are represented and have a, a relatively, uh, you know, a smaller voice. But I think what the Commission has learned um, and what the, what the EU institutions have learned by being exclusively competent and having a lot more strategic autonomy um, 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 available or in, in, their, in their hands in terms of instruments, um, is that the US has very, very clear interests uh, itself and uh, has also very clear interests and security interests and domestically driven security interests in Ukraine itself, meaning that we are, of course, very happy and very glad that the US are bringing in the capabilities and the, the financial aid that, uh, that they have. Um, uh, but uh, there's also a recognition, particularly on among trade negotiators who are, who are continuously uh, engaging with USTR, that there is a very domestically driven agenda for the US to engage Russia in Ukraine. And this is uh, this is has to do with elections uh, that have happened uh, in 2016. That has to, that has to do with uh, Joe Biden being a Cold War operator uh, in in his in his past life, um, and uh, that has to do with with uh, what the U.S. is able and willing and very happily willing to invest uh, to uh, uh, to weaken uh, Putin. And that is one one of the very very few uh, issues in the very divided political spectrum. In the United States right now that can be acted upon. So this is uh, what I think what our friends in Berlin and uh, and France uh, should also take into account uh, when uh, we are you know being spoken to uh, from the United States uh, because it's so easy to divide the, the, the capitals on on these issues where it's less easy to do that perhaps from a Brussels perspective on trade where you know in terms of strategic autonomy we have now developed a whole set of new instruments in response to certainly the countries we don't name are China, but are also the United States, because the United States have become uh, a less reliable partner in trade and, and economic affairs. And uh, and that is, is a development that has set in with, uh, with President Trump, um, but it's continued. And we've just recently had uh, statements uh, from 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 a, from a very senior journalist here in Brussels who says, you know, the RA is basically could have been done a a, a piece of Trump's work um, or a piece of of Republican work in that uh, this is so highly discriminatory discriminatory against and so highly uh, highly disconnected from um, uh, from economic integration rules that have been built or have been written by the United States itself. Uh, herself and uh, and and therefore uh, we are really in a different era in which we have to act in the trade and investment sphere but also in the security sphere um uh, more uh, more autonomously and i think this is uh, this is something that that's in dealing with ustr uh, which has 
thrown a previous, uh, you know, under uh, the previous USCR leadership under the bus, uh, under the, you know, sort of leadership under the Obama administration. So there's been a, a real, a real shift there that is, uh, that is, uh, uh, you know, probably going to continue. But it's very, very important that I think I see this is what we see also in the in the emotional um, uh, state of the de debate on on this this particular issue of the IRA, that the Commission folks are really uh, running out of patience there. In that we've had they've had they have worked uh, towards um, uh, getting rid of the Airbus Boeing subsidy dispute. They have worked towards uh, you know a global steel aluminum arrangement to calm down uh, uh, fears over dismantling two three two national security tariffs. And now they want to see a shift in policy and they want to see a, a, a more favorable view of the international sphere in the domestic policy and climate policy making. Well, wow. we're just getting this all out there. So, but I would say, I mean, and you hear the view from the from Washington, I mean, you can see where the disconnect is because then the view from Washington is that this is the Biden administration's effort to deliver on a really historic climate agenda, right? And like, the, these are, the, this is what Europe has been asking of the United States for a really long time. So I, I do think the White House sees this as an important historic step towards them delivering on these climate commitments. But I want to pull on one more pressure point, which is China, which is another thing that was mentioned in the, the joint statement between the, um, the two presidents. And again, maybe David, just to start with you to do a little of the scene setting, kind of how you, I think we would all agree there's been quite a lot of convergence between the United States and Europe over the last several years on the China issue. Um, but when you kind of look at some individual points, and again, speaking of a U.S. agenda, is this issue um, in particular of the new U.S. restrictions on semiconductors and now kind of U.S. pressure on member states, particularly the Netherlands, to, to align their policies with the United States. So that's one little point of friction. But I wonder, if, again, if you just set the landscape, particularly you know, through a lens of, of, of the trade and uh, economy piece, how do you think that allies are doing on the, on transatlantic unity on China, and then we'll get Liana both the, the the view from Berlin and then the view from Paris. Well, first of all, I think that the U.S. the U.S. Uh, United States is heavily invested in this competition with uh, with uh, with China uh, for various uh, domestic political, but also uh, external uh, political reasons, and and so there there's. There's, uh, there's there's the tech war. There's uh, there's the security conflict. So there's there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but I think you know that there is definitely uh, no appetite. We have seen with the Ukraine war an attempt. I'm um, visibly experienced or you know personally experienced this. Uh, official U.S. officials coming over to to Brussels and lobbying for um, you know a narrative that would put China in the same boat with Russia. And I think uh, for this narrative, there is uh, definitely in Brussels at least no appetite. Um, there is uh, certainly the, uh, the the autonomous recognition or the quite you know heavily experienced, uh, heartfelt experienced um, uh, um, uh, uh, sort of episode of 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 reliance of dependence on certain uh, goods that are critical. Uh, and now we are we're better. We want to be better at analyzing <clears throat> what we export from certain nations, um, you know, without having a substitute. Um, and uh, so this this is this is this has appeared on the radar. At the same time, um, the security dimension of this 
um, that is related to economics um, has not uh, resonated so well in Brussels in that um, I do not believe that Brussels is ready to impose export restrictions uh, on the on the on semiconductors uh, to China. Um, there is <clears throat> a a, a strong effort to reassure the Chinese as well that uh, that that we are having um, that the European Union has an autonomous position on China um, that uh, is not um, is is we of course take into account uh, the U.S. Um, uh, the U.S. rather aggressive approach, um, but uh, but it is is forming its own position and it is also putting in place a highly sophisticated set of instruments to incentivize the Chinese to work with us. Um, and that includes the anti-coercion instrument uh, that is that is coming in. Uh, that includes uh, the the labor, the forced labor ban. Uh, that includes uh, not to go down the road for export uh, controls for semiconductors, um, and, and and several other instruments that uh, that really show the Chinese that we want to work with them um, where where we can, and uh, and will uh, set negative incentives where we have to. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, Liana, so obviously Scholz had his visit to Beijing. I think Macron is set to go soon. I don't know if a date has been set, but I mean, to what extent are French and German perspectives on China aligned or not? Do you see daylight between them? Yeah, I mean, I think because um, I'm as every good German is a huge French uh, friend of the German um, French friendship. Um, L'amitié franco-allemande. Um, but again, this was an issue where um, there were serious disagreements between um, Paris and Berlin. Um, uh, it's not by yeah, by chance that it was leaked from uh, the French side that Paris would have preferred Mac uh, Macron and Scholz to go together. Scholz wanted to go alone because it was his first visit to Beijing, which also made sense. But again, this was one of the issues which really um, put a strain on German-French relations. And I think Scholz was under particular scrutiny during this trip and also afterwards. And I think the most interesting aspect of that is perhaps the domestic dynamics that are playing out in Berlin. So, I mean, Scholz had some success with a nuclear statement from China and so on. But domestically, he got under a lot of pressure because in his three-party coalition, um, uh, really the Greens are the ones who are pushing for a tougher approach on China and who are working on a China strategy right now, which will come out in the next month and which is um, both from the economic side, but also from the security side, much tougher than everything that, that we've seen so far. And the issue about the um, Chinese investment in the Hamburg port was something where suddenly the chancellery found itself against six of its ministries um, who opposed um, a 35% um, investment from the Chinese side. Um, so the process of developing the China strategy in Berlin will be something which tells us more about where Berlin actually stands, because everyone expects that the China strategy from the Green Foreign Ministry will be watered down by the Chancellery. Um, and that's something, and relating this back to the United States, um, Berlin and I think also France are trying to use the leverage that they have with China um, back with the United States. So a talking point um, uh, from the German side was that, well, Washington, if you want us to become tougher on China, you can't sort of have this IRA um, uh, problem for us. We can't do both. We can't be tougher on China at the same time and have the IRA issue, um, which I'm not sure really 
is flying in Washington, but it is a framing that, that Germany has tried in the past. Um, and it certainly supports uh, a third way, if one wants to call it a third European way on China policy here. Um, but the criticism that was leveled against Germany is that while it is talking a lot about, you know, um, uh, expert guarantees, checking expert guarantees for German companies, the German economy is actually going into the other direction. So in the first half of 2022, we saw record high investments in the Chinese market, which is something which sort of puts Germany's credibility at stake for the moment if there's a lot of talk about reducing dependency, but the reality is different and Scholz still travels with a big business delegation to Beijing. And Matthew. Yes, first I would say that I'm equally committed to a uh, French-German uh, friendship, which has, <laughs> which I I followed in in Paris, and that was actually my first piece coming here at uh, at CSIS on uh, rebooting the what we call French the uh, Franco-German engine. Uh, so coming back on, on on China, I think the joint declaration was uh, very illustrative of, of this uh, resynchronized uh, agenda. The the statement says uh, the two countries will continue to coordinate our concerns so coordinate our concerns is i mean sees that uh, shows that there there is a will to have uh, coordination but also that they are not uh, exactly aligned on on china and i think the uh, the, the the word that is used in, in Paris on, on China and, and the the, chi the U.S. Chinese competition is not aligned, not equidistant. So I think we we're not standing between, but we have a different uh, a different policy, and and I think that applies particularly when it comes to uh, where are the venues to the appropriate venues to tackle the China challenge. And actually, I think in this regard, uh, Paris and Berlin positions are rather close, I would say, in saying that the European Union, because the Chinese challenge to Europe is at the time uh, non-military, uh, mostly uh, trade, industry, uh, investments. Uh, so the idea is that the EU is a, is a much more equipped uh, venue to tackle the, the challenges arising from, from China. And then that's one of the main bone of contentions between Washington and Paris is the role of NATO uh, into it. And China was at, at the agenda of the last uh, foreign ministerial and probably will be here. I mean, it's here now in every summit. It will probably be the case still in Vilnius uh, in July. And so France is uh, kind of pushing back on, on a, a role of, uh, of NATO in, in tackling the, the, China, the China challenge beyond the Euro-Atlantic area. And I think that's, uh, that's a view that is uh, not in the details, but broadly speaking, shared by, by Berlin. I know we're at the end of time, and if you have time, just for one last question, because it's a you mentioned this, um, David, a couple of times, but this idea that the United States isn't really a reliable partner anymore. And certainly with all of the protectionism in the trade domain, that's certainly the sense in Brussels. And I just wonder, you know, just to hear from each of you, maybe like closing thoughts on, you know, where, about the concerns about the United States moving forward. Obviously, they were very acute under Trump. Um, but as you know, you mentioned, um, David, the journalist saying that the legislation, the IRA, could have very well been written by a Trump administration. So it's clear that some of the concerns that Europe had under Trump have persisted. And so as you look forward, what are what are the concerns that you're hearing or that you personally have about the relationship and the reliability of the U.S. as a partner? 
with Macron saying during the press conference, uh, Joe, uh, just to say for the record, it's great to have you back. It's great to have America back and we can engage with you or words to that effect. So um, the, the, the immediate effect of the Democrats coming into, uh, into USTR and, uh, and uh, well, in, into the administration really is that the conversation about economic cooperation and, uh, and uh, you know, wider cooperation in the WTO framework, et cetera, uh, has become a lot more friendly and, and polite. I've been part of meetings uh, where officials uh, have openly uh, threatened European uh, officials um, with, uh, you know, uh, former ambassadors, um, you know, openly threatening with uh, with car tariffs um, in the first in in in, a, in what should be a courtesy meeting. So this is, has been a great change. Um, the conversations are, are are very civilized now, um, but uh, there is certainly a realization also in Europe that the United States is in a very difficult domestic political uh, position. And that uh, there is uh, a need to reassure domestic constituencies that um, they are they are being taken care of, that they are uh, that they are uh, that they, that there is uh, economic and social uh, cohesion uh, within the country, that the country is growing, that there is a path to success, that uh, that that the social cohesion is not falling apart, and and this and economic policy, unfortunately, a trade policy has. Uh, played a role in this uh, to the extent that USTR is trying to assure constituencies that trade policy can be used to fix inequality. And that is unfortunate uh, uh, because it is not trade, it is an, an instrument to gain uh, profits uh, for companies that, has to be, that have to be redistributed. So it's a distributional problem within the US that has not been addressed by Build Back Better that could uh, provide uh, the, uh, the the social social transformation uh, that that the US uh, from the European point of view needs in order uh, to have uh, more or to to stabilize politically and this is at the core of what i think the european perception is um what uh, what the united states uh, a transformation process that the United States has to undergo in order to become a politically reliable partner in the long term again, and and to to heal those divisions in the country, and that is certainly also a heartfelt concern in Europe um, that goes beyond the economic interests, and uh, and therefore uh, we are we are wary of that, but at the same time uh, the EU also has to defend um, its economic interests um, that it and by the principles that it holds up itself. Um, and on the most favored nation basis. So uh, there's there's hope and there's there's the the now more resolution to uh, to use also negative incentives uh, to uh, to make clear uh, what the position is. Liana, wow. yeah, Liana, what do you what what do you think? I, it's been fascinating to 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 listen to David because it tells me once again, it shows me once again how different the priorities are if you look at the transatlantic relationship from a trade and from a security perspective, right? Because from a security perspective, the picture looks entirely different. I mean, we have a United States administration, which is, I mean, spending most of the time on alliance management, which we haven't we haven't seen for such a long time, which places such an emphasis on unity within the alliance, on unity in the Ukraine war, and where it is rather the question, is European, are Europeans contributing enough to the war effort? And that was also the concern after the outcome of the midterm elections. If one looks at the overall contribution that the United States gives to Ukraine, 
especially now with this lame duck period bill that the United States tries to bring through to secure support um, for Ukraine with a Republican House of Representatives. The question really is, um, is there a disbalance of burden sharing on Ukraine on the European side? Um, and of course, one can also bring in sort of the refugee costs and the energy costs for Europeans, but still, it, it doesn't look great if and it's difficult to explain to U.S. citizens why the United States is contributing more support to Ukraine than than Europeans are. So that's um, that's that that's just a dynamic in the security sphere where the United States has such a prominent leadership role that uh, yeah, it's really up for Europeans to show that they can contribute more. Just to make one brief clarification on my side to say that I was I was speaking about long term reliability, long term reliability um, and beyond the two year election cycle. And I think this is uh, this is very fragile and that depends a bit on, on the domestic political circumstances that I was trying to refer to, which are, you know, I think and, and that and that alludes to both security and, and economic policy making. So just just to, uh, to clarify. And I think that's legitimate. I think that point of view is legitimate. And I would agree with both, actually, uh, coming from the more the security defense side. I, I would agree with uh, with Liana. I mean, when you have a country that is committing uh, 60 billion dollars uh, and, and perhaps uh, later 100 billion dollars for uh, to support uh, Ukraine, I mean, <laughs> this is what we call the reliable uh, partner, but then I agree with David. It's I think the question is not uh, reliable, but how sustainable is this uh, reliability? And uh, uh, President Macron said in uh, early September to all the French ambassadors gathered in Paris, he used this uh, phrase that we have paid the price of uncertainty uh, to uh, describe the relation with uh, with the United States. So th there has been a precedent. Uh, there might be others in the future, and so uh, I think that's also one of the of the quotes from the uh, EU strategic compass that we have to work with partners uh, as much as possible, but also be able to work without partners when necessary. And I think that encapsulates uh, at least the the Parisian the Parisian uh, vision. I mean, the, the United States is fundamental, but we also have to be ready uh, if the if the winds uh, change. Wow, this was such a great conversation. We definitely went very long, um, but wow, that I, we just covered a tremendous am amount of ground. And I think, you know, I am very grateful that you took the time to do this. Um, Jim. Thank, thank you so much. And 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 uh, Matthew, I think what you just said is really interesting because, you know, how has Ukraine helped prove that point, whether Europe is ready or not, if the winds do blow in another direction, is Europe ready? If not, which we've kind of said, at least in terms of Ukraine, it really wasn't, when will that happen and will it happen? Anyway, sorry, Andrea. No, 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 this was really wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, and hopefully we'll, maybe we'll revisit this again. This I loved this combination. I thought it was really wonderful. So hopefully we can um, check back in in a couple of months. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, so much, Thanks to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.